You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. That bad, huh? All right. That's <laughs> good. We've got our work cut out for Ooh, us this morning. It's going to be a rough crowd. Hey, I want to make you aware of something right off the bat before we jump into uh, the message, which is, uh, for, if, if those of you are familiar with Adrian Rogers, that name ring a bell to, yeah, I know some of you for sure do, Prince of Preachers, just one of the most incredible voices for biblical truth of his time, pastored a church in Memphis, Tennessee called Bellevue Baptist Church, one of the flagship Baptist churches in the world, um, very influential. Uh, they are now pastored by another man by the name of Steve Gaines, and uh, again, incredibly influential individual in our denomination and really in evangelicalism. And uh, so much so that when a, a church like Bellevue does something, people typically take note and, and are influenced by that. And Bellevue is doing something in January called the Fearless Series for Women. Yes. Uh, Really amazing uh, connecting dots of how it got to that point, but um, James and I are both uh, graduates. I'm actually still there, can't seem to leave, uh, Southwestern <laughs> Baptist Theological <laughs> Seminary. and uh, Student for life. Student for life. Um, <laughs> this, this is it, terminal degree. Okay, um, terminal degree, that's yeah. right. Uh, if you've been around the seminary at all, you know, you know Bellevue and you know the names Adrian Rogers and Steve Gaines. And so uh, if you would just pray with us um, that that would not only impact the women there at, at Bellevue, but that it would really send a, a sort of clarion call to other churches who are looking to do something about this problem and who would otherwise maybe be a little skeptical of material that they were not familiar with, but seeing Bellevue do it would give them the confidence to go forward with it. It's just got a really incredible... Uh, potential to blow this series up in the mm. best of all possible ways. And yes. so we just ask you to pray with us in that endeavor. Um, I was in Portland, Oregon about six weeks ago, I guess I, it was, uh, with the Pure Desire Conference. I was showing the Fearless series there, and uh, a husband and wife came up to me who had seen me on the Conquer series, and I was, uh, she came up to me and said, you're just the master of disguises because uh, this continuing problem has made me kind of change my look through the years, and they'd never seen me in person. There I was, I was wearing my cowboy hat and have a patch on. She said, you're just a master of disguise. And uh, she recognized me from that, and then she got really intrigued with the Fearless series, and, and she said, I'm going to take this, I want to take this back and get it in my church. And I said, well, what church are you a member of? She said, Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> I went, yeah, how what, can what? I help you? Yeah. How can I? And she did. She actually gave it to the pastor's wife, Donna Blair, and, uh, or Donna Gaines. And uh, Donna actually teaches a Sunday school class of a 1,000 women on Sunday morning. Okay, so she has a Sunday school class of a 1,000 women, and that's larger than 99% of churches in America, just her Sunday school class. And they have really bought into it. And uh, so I'm really excited about that opportunity. And uh, also uh, Westside Church in Omaha, Nebraska is going to start after the first year. Their church of about 3,000 in attendance. I think Bellevue averages about 8,000 8, in Sunday morning mm -hmm. attendance. And so uh, we're really excited about that because it really can open some doors. Yes. So thank you. By the way, I was in uh, Colorado Springs a few weeks ago. Doug Weiss had asked me to come up there and show the Fearless series at a women's conference that he was doing. And while I was there, he asked me if I would interview for his podcast. And I went, duh, yeah, okay, I'll be happy to. 
And I saw myself on that, and I guess the lighting, it showed this massive silver streak in my hair. And I knew there was some silver there, but I never really noticed it. And I went, whoa, what is that? It looked like somebody taking silver paint and it just kind of sprayed across. Does it look like that right now? Yep. Okay, well, I'm the last one to find out. Because when I look in the mirror, all I see is a nose, and I don't see anything else. And so that's probably why I haven't. The nose and the silver hair, I'm, you know, uh, whatever. Anyway, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Jude, the little letter that Jude wrote of 20-something verses that's just before the book of Revelation. When I was in law school, I was introduced to a concept called the slippery slope argument. It's a, it's a legal argument that is used oftentimes, particularly relating mostly to constitutional issues. And it says that every relaxation of a constitutional restraint against freedom is an invitation for further relaxation of restraint. Now, that's kind of a round the way of saying it, but so let me put it in layman's terms. In other words, if one infringement, constitutional infringement, that is promised to us in the Constitution is, uh, uh, is lessened, then that opens the door for another one to happen and another restraint to be removed until ultimately our rights are removed. And it is a legal argument called the the slippery slope argument. Uh, So uh, what we're trying to get away from with that argument is allowing any infringement upon constitutional freedoms so that we don't get onto the slippery slope and a freedom is ultimately eroded. It's used also in medicine now. It's often applied to the practice of euthanasia. And the legal argument against any form of, of, of assisted suicide or anything that is, what if you do that, then the next one is this, the next one is this, and before long, we're just going to be putting old people to death. And so, they, against that slippery slope, once you make that first step, you slide off the edge. Roe versus Wade is a good example of the slippery slope syndrome. When it was decided in 1973... The, uh, the justices believed that even though abortion was made legal in America, that it would still be relatively rare. That was 50 years ago. Over the last 50 years, we went, have gone down that slippery slope in the issue of abortion to where now we are aborting almost 1 million unborn babies legally a year in the United States of America. The slippery slope. When it was legalized by the Supreme Court, as I said, the justices believed that it would still be relatively rare, and now we're putting to death one million unborn babies a year. That's the slippery slope. I often use the slippery slope illustration to help people in decision-making in their life. I say, well, you know, if you make this decision, why don't you get out of the moment for just a moment and take the long look? Look 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Where is this decision? Where can it ultimately take you? Will it put you on a slippery slope that ultimately would take you someplace that you don't want to do? And I think most of us have seen this kind of thing in one area of our life or another where you you make one decision and then that decision leads to another and then another and then 20 years down the road, you look at your life and you go, how did I get here? Well, the way you got here is when you look back, you say, well, it all began with that one decision, with that one decision, which led to another one and another one and another one. And over the course of 20 years, the slippery slope took me to the bottom. Mm. See, the slippery slope illustrates the fact that we rarely die from one paper cut. You're not going to bleed to death if you get one paper cut. But if you get a thousand of them, you can absolutely bleed out. And so the slippery slope is this idea that if if you let... The, 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 I think the old Arab saying, if you let a camel get his nose in the tent, he'll be in bed with you before too long. Mm-hmm. So you're better off just to not let him get his nose in the tent to begin with if you don't want a camel in bed with you. 
So this morning in the study of Jude, we come to verses 8 through 11. We've come to these verses in our study of Jude called Contentious Christianity. And in this text, Jude lays out a spiritual slippery slope. He lays out a, a slippery slope into apostasy. In verse 4, he's warned these Christians that there are certain ones that have crept into their midst that are not genuinely Christian, but they are apostates. And what that means is that they were, have been exposed to God's truth, but they never fully bought into God's truth. And now what they're doing is they've come in, they've crept in, he says, and they're seeking to lead others astray. So Jude says, you must contend with them. You must confront this and you must contend for the faith and hold firm to the truth of the faith. Mm. So in verses 8 through 11, Jude just kind of lays this slippery slope out in a way that it can happen. And there's a whole lot of information here. In three verses, he takes us on a survey of Old Testament history. And uh, Derek is particularly going to spend his time on some of that Old Testament history. But the first decision sets the stage for all the rest. And it is a decision where the slippery slope begins into apostasy. He says, first of all, these people have rejected biblical truth. Oof. In verse 8, Jude refers to these people that have crept in seeking to draw them astray as dreamers. Literally translated, because it is a middle voice participle in the Greek language, it means the ones who are dreaming. And the grammatical construction has the idea that they are dreaming for themselves. They are right. dreaming for some benefit that they can accrue to themselves, okay? So understanding that in its context, what Jude is actually saying is that they are dreaming up, they have dreamed up all of their own ideas about spiritual things, and now they're acting those things out, and they are wanting to entice others to follow them. And then right after that, as we're going to go into it, Jude begins to list some of the things that follow after they've started dreaming up their own kind of spiritual authority, their own kind of theology. But it all begins at this point, that they, first of all, they've rejected God's word and have replaced it with their own thoughts and their own ideas. That's where it goes bad. They've come up with their own beliefs because they've rejected the Word of God as objective truth. And they've developed their own lifestyle that they want to live because they've rejected the Word of God as a guide for life. They conjure up their own theology. And Jude's point is simply this. Beware of these people who are in your midst. Not only be aware of them, but he says to contend with them for the truth of the faith and do not follow them. Now, here is the problem. And we're facing this right now. I think every culture has for 2,000 years. I believe that it is the, the battle is much more alive and well today than any time in my lifetime of almost 70 years. Here's the problem. Once you reject God's word as being objective truth that all are responsible to, then you begin to go over the ledge. Because when you reject the Bible as objective truth from God, then you feel free to begin to construct your own truth. And that moves you into this slippery slope. Because without objective truth that stands upon its own authority, which is God's word, then all so-called truth becomes completely subjective. Mm. 
In other words, anything that you want to be true, you can declare to be true. Anything you dream up for yourself, once you've rejected an objective standard, then everything is just your subjective standard of what you determine is true. Now, the application for us right now is all historians will agree that America is in a period of time that is called the postmodern era. That this period, that before the postmodern era, was a time that historians and philosophers and academics referred to as the period of modernism. And one of the key uh, tenets of modernism was that modernism accepts the, re- the possibility of objective truth. Modernism said, yes, there is objective truth. There is truth that is outside of ourselves. Well, that began to change. It's been about 70 years ago, and it began to change among academics typically, and that's where most heresy starts with with eggheads, okay? Academics thinking about, well, what is true and what is not true and and being taught in the universities and then ultimately into high school and, and ultimately down into grade school. And so over the course of 70 years, America has evolved from being a postmodern culture that accepted the reality of objective truth to a postmodern culture that rejects even the possibility of there being objective truth. So what our culture says today, and you can see it in many areas, is that all truth, so-called truth, is subjective. It is experience-based, and it is what you determine that truth to be. Now, a common phrase that sounds innocuous but actually reflects this entire philosophy is, well, that's your truth. Have you heard that? Well, that's your truth. And that's not, that is a postmodern statement. What that is acknowledging is that you have your truth and I have my truth and Joe has his truth and Sarah has her truth because there is no such thing as objective truth that under which we are to accountable. We all create our own truth. Are you with me? And Paul warned of this, and it has happened all through Christian history. I think right now we're in a time that it's more visible. When he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, the time is going to come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. No, they'll, they'll, they'll go to teachers that will say what they want them to say. And they will turn away their ears from the truth. They will turn away from the objective truth of God, and they will turn aside to these myths. Mm. They will turn aside to these dreams. They will turn aside to the self-constructed, experientially-based truth that people hold. You know, it's interesting. Derek was telling me not long ago that a while back, I guess, somebody left the church, and they came to him and told him why they were leaving the church, because there's too much Bible teaching going on. I was like, thanks. Yeah. I mean, that's like a compliment, but for them it was not because they wanted to hear more about, I don't know, what, what, what they want to hear. I'm not real sure. Self-help. But, yeah, but it was just like, no, there's just too much Bible teaching going on, and we want something a little less heavy or I don't know exactly what, what they said. But that is a mindset. That is a mindset that God's Word is not the summation of all truth, that we don't want to, you know, it's okay to have around, but let's don't get real, let's don't get uh, fanatical about this thing. So this is what Paul says would happen. This is what's happening today in America. Is first of all, they would reject truth. Then they would reject those who teach the truth. 
and then they would embrace those who teach falseness, and then they would embrace that false teaching from a false teacher. And that is what's happening all over America. It begins when we reject the authority of God's truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus did not believe in your truth, my truth, so-and-so's truth. Jesus believed in God's truth. So this is the first decision that leads down this slippery slope, and it gets ugly after this. Not only then, then they reject biblical morality. I'll try to speed up here a little bit, Derek, because he's got some good stuff for you. Not that I don't, but yeah. he's, got, you know, he's got some good stuff. So in verse 8, it says, Jude says, in the same way, they defile the flesh. Now, in the same way is a statement that points back to what he's just said in verse 7, where he has talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and their decadence, and their total moral depravity, and ultimately, their destruction. And so he says, in the same way, like they did in Sodom and Gomorrah, these people have given themselves over to a lifestyle that violates God's anointed word. Well, why do they do that? Because they don't believe God's anointed word. They don't believe it is objective truth. So the next step for them is, that, well, then we can just live any way we want to. See, once you, once you reject God's standard, then you can create your own standard. Once you reject God's word as the ultimate truth that we are all bound by, well, then the second step into the slippery slope is then I can do what I want to do. I can live the way I want to. Now, again, this is so relevant for our culture today. It's a, and here's a very timely question, as a matter of fact, that Derek asked the congregation a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about this, the text of Sodom and Gomorrah, Okay. And here, here is the question. Are you willing to espouse a biblical morality wherever you are? See, here's, the, here's what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. The men of the city came to Lot. Lot had, was housing two men who were actually angels who came in physical form. And the men of the city said, let them come out here so we can have sex with them. So it was a clear rejection of a biblical sexuality, clear rejection of biblical sexuality. And we find that happening everywhere in our culture, and we also find it happening, quite frankly, in the church. And so the question for us is, are you willing to espouse a biblical morality? You see, the world is not threatened by our biblical theology. They're really not. They don't believe it, but... Believing it for us is just fine with them. They'll just say, well, if you want to believe that stuff, if you want to believe that myth of live Jesus. Live your truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> live your truth. Just, yeah. yeah, live your truth out. That's okay. That's your truth. So they're not threatened by our biblical theology. They might argue with you a little bit, but ultimately they say, well, you're just stupid. If you want to believe that myth, then go ahead. But once you espouse a biblical morality, all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. Isn't that true? You can talk about Jesus all you want to, and they may laugh at you, but when you talk about God's standard of biblical sexuality, then all of a sudden, you are evil. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, you're homophobic or you're old-fashioned old or whatever. You become the enemy because the world is not threatened by biblical theology. What our culture and our world is threatened by is biblical morality. But once you, but once you 
reject the objective standard of God's word, then it's a free-for-all, your truth, your truth, live however you want to. And when someone says, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what God's word says. They say, you're evil. Mm. And we must cancel you. We must put you out. We must put you out of business. We must do this. We must make you lose your job because you have espoused a biblical morality. You know, in the church, we see this happening a lot today, uh, increasingly a lot. Sometimes Christians will say, well, when you, when you can talk about something about morality, they'll say, well, maybe Scripture says that. I'm not real sure because they just go, you know, I'm not really sure what the Bible says about that. But uh, so what they're doing is they start with, uh, calling the Word of God into question. That's a very kind of first step thing. And then the next one, next level, is someone says, well, I know what the Bible says about that, but I'm going to do this. <laughs> and you can't, I can't tell you how many times, thousands of times in 40 years, I've heard people say that, who were professing Christians, who were church members, who said, you know what, I know the Bible says it, but I want to do this, and so this is what I'm going to do. I'm always, I'm always just like, why are you coming to church then? Like, yeah. why are you... Why, are, why do you call yourself a Christian? If, if, you're, if you're willing to look at the Bible and say, yeah, I know that's what it says, but yeah. But I'm just going to do what I want to do. Why are you here? I'm just going to, my, my morality is something in this situation that I'm going to do because it is something I want to do. Where is the enemy most effective in div- diluting God's truth? Where is he most effective? He is not effective from the outside because when the outside world attacks us for the truth of our faith, Typically, the uh, gospel explodes and the church expands. Where the enemy is the most effective is when he comes from the inside. That's where he's effective. It's not when he stands as an obvious enemy to the truth. It's when he acts like a genuine friend. Not when he attacks the church, when he joins the church. That's when the enemy does his greatest work. Not when he ridicules the pulpit or the desk or whatever you happen to be using. We don't have a pulpit. But not when he ridicules the pulpit, but when he stands behind it. Not when he burns the Bible, but when he teaches from it and denies it. Mm. You see, what Jude is talking about, he's talking about counterfeit Christians, bogus believers, and false prophets that Jesus warned us against. You see... Peter reminded us there are false prophets who secretly bring in destructive heresy, denying the master. Jude says we must contend for them. So here's the slippery slope. It begins with rejecting God's objective truth and the word, and then that leads you into the next step. Well, that means then I can basically live morally however I choose to live, which leads then to the third which is the rejection of spiritual authority. Once you get to that point of rejecting truth and rejecting biblical morality and developing your own morality, what will happen is someone will hopefully, if you're in a Christian community, call you on the carpet for it, and that will lead you to one of two choices. You either repent, you see the the error of your way, you repent and are restored, that's the hope, or you move further down the slippery slope and you reject spiritual authority altogether. Now, this part of the passage gets admittedly difficult, <laughs> if, to say the least, if you're not firmly in touch with what the Old Testament teaches. And so, from verses 9 through 11, we're going to hit like, I think, four major Old Testament stories. And by major, I mean actually very minor mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that you're not likely familiar with unless you are super familiar with the Old Testament. It starts in verse 9. Jude says, But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but instead said, (laughs) the Lord 
rebuke you. Now, it doesn't get more epic than this. As your head starts spinning, going, yeah. what is that about? We have Michael the archangel fighting the literal devil over the dead body of Moses. I mean, this is awesome. This is like, they should make a movie of this, right? It's crazy. Now, by the way, I, I think James mentioned first service, you have to be somebody if when you die, you have these people fighting over your body. I mean, two spiritual entities fighting over your body. Yeah, yeah. When, when, when I die, I like to think no one is going to be that concerned uh, as perhaps most. The guy the dude's only got one eye. We don't want right, that body. Yeah, what are we going to do with this? Now, in order to know what's going on here, you need to know something about Moses' burial, his death and burial in the Old Testament. When Moses dies, Deuteronomy props him up into a class of his own. He is a prophet unlike any other prophet until Jesus comes. Deuteronomy, the last verses of Deuteronomy says, there has not arisen another prophet in Israel like Moses. There's no one like Moses who knew God face to face, who worked the miracles that he worked. He is in a class of his own. And so check this out. When he dies, Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6 says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. So there are two interesting things about this passage. Number one, it tells us where Moses was buried. It says that he was buried in the land of Moab, but no one knows the place of his burial. It's a secret. It's a it's mystery. Because God buried him. Got, and that's the second part. Because it tells us who buried Moses. God did. It says that Moses died according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him. And the question becomes, who is the he that Deuteronomy is speaking of? Tradition, history, the rest of the Old Testament tells us it was the Lord. It was God himself. God came down and buried Moses in an unknown place, likely because if people knew where he was buried, they would have probably... I, idolized him. Yeah, they would have dug him up and oh, yeah. propped him up and worshipped him or they something. They did it with his bronze staff. It would have we, been weekend we, at Bernie's It would have been weekend again. at Bernie's all over again. Man, that would have gotten very dark. Very, very dark. So, so this sets the stage for what Judah's talking about to an extent, right? We have Moses. He's died. God has buried him in some unknown spot. But notice, there's nothing about Michael the archangel here. There's nothing about the devil here. Michael's referenced several times in the Old Testament. The devil's referenced a few times in the Old Testament. Neither of them are here. So what is Jude talking about? Jude is referencing a very well-known for his time book Not out of the Bible, not in the Jewish Bible, it's not scripture, but it was an important book nonetheless called The Assumption of Moses. Some of the early church fathers uh, talk about this book. We have no copies of it today. We have no idea beyond just the few things that history tells us uh, uh, regarding what it said. But in the story, this is what we do know, that Moses dies and that God, seeking to bury him in an unknown place chooses to bury him through the agency of Michael. Michael, the archangel, does the burying on God's behalf. And it says that when Michael arrives, the devil arrives as well, and they begin to argue over who should be given the body. The devil argues that he should take Moses' body because according to Exodus 2, 12 through 14, Moses is a murderer. Remember, he murdered that Egyptian guy. And so he is therefore condemned. He should be given to the devil. And Michael, rather than contending with Satan, he's very powerful. He's the prince of angels, the prophet Mm -hmm. Daniel says. He is a very powerful spiritual being. He has the power to rebuke the devil, but he had not been given the authority to do so yet. Mm -hmm. Later on, Revelation chapter 12, he is given the authority, and it is Michael, the prince of angels, who throws down Satan from heaven and binds him to the earth. But it wasn't time yet. And so instead of powering up on Satan... 
Michael stayed under the authority that was above him. All he simply said was, the Lord rebuke you. He had the power to rebuke him. He didn't have the authority. So the point that Jude is making in all of this, not that this is a true story, but this is a well-known story that illustrates a very important point, which is this, that Michael was under the spiritual authority of God, and he remained there. He was obedient to the authority that was over him. Now, come back to the big idea here for a moment about the slippery slope. When you are on the slippery slope, you first reject biblical truth. That leads you to reject biblical morality. You begin to define your own morality. And when you are called on the carpet for it, unlike Michael, you will reject spiritual authority. Mm-hmm. You will not listen to God. You will not listen to God's leaders that he has put in place. Once I decide that the Bible is not binding on myself, I can make up my own morality and no one, not even God, is going to tell me otherwise. In essence, I become my own God yeah. because I'm the one that decides what is right for me and what is wrong for me. And what Judah's saying here is not even the archangel powers up on God and you are no archangel. <laughs> You're just a regular old man or woman who will one day die and you will be at the mercy of God whether you like it or not because there is spiritual authority in your life whether you choose to recognize it or not. It's not a good slope to slide down, folks. (laughs) The slippery slope starts with rejecting biblical truth and then you reject biblical morality and then when people call you on it, you reject spiritual authority. Fourth, that leads you to reject biblical salvation. Notice in verse 11, he says, woe to them for they have gone the way of Cain. Now, the ones he's talking about are these who have sneaked in among the Christians, these apostates. He says, this is what they've done. They have gone the way of Cain. Now, once again, this is Old Testament Scripture, and if you're not up to speed on it, then what what is the way of Cain? Well, all of Jude's hearers were Jews, and they understood immediately what Jude was talking about. So, since we're not all Jews and we don't all understand it all, let's go back for just a quick moment. Chapter 4 of Genesis is where Cain and Abel, two brothers, are called to bring an offering before God. And the Scripture says that Abel brought an animal sacrifice from his flocks, and Cain, who was a farmer, he brought an offering of grain from his crops. And the Bible says that God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. Now, the question is, why? Well... What is happening in Cain and Abel is a very early picture, even in the fourth chapter of Genesis, before the sacrificial system is instituted later, before the cross of Christ comes, the final sacrifice. Before all of that, God is giving a picture of the only way to approach him. The only way for those who are sinners, which is all of us, who are separated from God, to be able to approach God, and it is by a blood sacrifice. It is always by the innocent who is being sacrificed for the guilty one. And of course, all of that, even with Cain and Abel, through the sacrificial system, was all a foreshadowing. It was a picture of the final perfect sacrifice that was going to be offered by Jesus on the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the last Passover Lamb. That is all uh, summed up in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, where it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, okay? So God has been giving that picture all through the Old Testament leading up to the cross of Christ, and then Hebrews says, without that blood being shed, sin cannot be forgiven. So go all the way back to Genesis 4, 
So what does Abel do? Abel comes God's way. Abel brings an animal sacrifice. It is a blood sacrifice. Cain decides not to do that. He does it his own way. He brings the work of his hands, the sweat of his brow, the grain that he has grown in, the, in, in, in his field. Now, let's be clear, okay, about what God's word says is the way of salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Mm. So Jesus establishes that there aren't many ways to heaven. There aren't many ways to salvation. There is only one. He says, I am the way, the truth. You can't come to the Father unless you come through me, me Jesus said. So, okay, so how then does that happen? How do we come to the Father through Jesus? Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is how you come, through Jesus, okay? So grace means that it is undeserved, salvation is. It's unearned. You can't do enough good works to earn your way into a right relationship with God, okay? So that's grace. Well, how do I receive this grace and come to the Father through Jesus? It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, through faith. Now, what does faith mean? Faith means you take God at his word. Now, if you've already object, uh, rejected God's word as the objective truth, you're not likely to do that. You're likely to come your own way. But the scripture says, no, no, you have to come by faith. In other words, God says this is how it has to happen. So therefore, you must come my way by totally depending upon the blood sacrifice, Jesus' precious blood, unblemished blood as of a perfect lamb that was sacrificed on the cross for you and I. That is God's way. Now, go back to Cain and Abel. Well, Abel came that way. Somehow he knew it was going to require a blood sacrifice, but Cain said, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to offer this work of my hands. I'm going to, I have labored hard and I have a great harvest and God is going to be so proud of me and, and this is worthy of presenting myself to him. So he brings a grain offering and God rejects that works-based offering and accepts the sacrificial offering of Abel. Are you getting this? Cain said, I did it my <laughs> way. And God said, I'll do it my way. <laughs> yeah. So there are two ways that you can reject biblical salvation, Okay. First is by thinking that you have works to present yourself to God. Now, that's what these people that Jude is warning about were doing. They'd come by the way of Cain. They were going to bring their good works and all these good things, and they supposed they would earn their way to heaven. So that's one way you can reject God's way of salvation is by thinking that you can be a good person and, and you're going to go to heaven. And I want to tell you that churches are filled. Folks, this is true. Churches are filled with people who hear the cross of Christ being proclaimed every Sunday and will even say they believe in the cross of Christ. But then when you ask them, do you know that if you died today, you would have eternal life? They will say, I hope so. You hope so? 
What do you mean by that? Well, I hope that I have done enough good things in my life that God is going to accept me. Now, on one hand, they're hearing the cross of Christ, that there's no way to come, that it comes by grace through faith. They hear that, and if you ask them, they'll believe in the cross of Christ, but when you ask them about how they have confidence that they're going to make it to heaven, it is by the way of Cain. It is by the way of their own works. You see, the only answer that a Christian can rightly give to that question is how do you do, how are you going to make it to heaven? I know I am because of the sacrifice of Christ, the way of Abel. The second way is by outright rejection of the biblical theology of salvation. Now, I think a lot of people are in churches and they just come up with that works answer because they're basically fairly ignorant about what Scripture says. They've heard preachers preach it. They've maybe read it a little bit, but they're really fairly ignorant about what the Scripture says about the only way to salvation. But there's another group of people that are not ignorant about what the Bible says about salvation. They just choose to reject it. And who are these? These are pastors. These are teachers in churches in this city and all over America who say that the idea of a blood sacrifice is barbaric. And so they reject that. They reject that Christ's death on the cross was a blood sacrifice in our behalf. What they will say about the cross is, yes, Jesus was crucified, but he shouldn't have been. I mean, that was a horrible thing that happened to him, and he shouldn't have been crucified, and that's a bad thing. But, you know, it didn't do us any good because that's not the way of salvation. The way of salvation is let's all be nice people. Okay, let's just all be good people, and then we're all going to make it to heaven. And those are preachers and pastors in churches in this city and around the nation that preach that every single way. They scoff at the idea of a blood sacrifice as being backward, ignorant, and barbaric of a culture 2,000 years old, and they say that is no longer true today. This is happening at Bright Divinity Seminary. It's right, right here on the, on, that's right, on the TCU campus uh, at... Uh, uh, whatever it is in, in the in SMU, the SMU. Methodist campus, they are teaching that the death of Christ was not necessary. In fact, it was a tragic accident that it even happened, but that his blood did not provide the way of salvation in spite of what the Bible says because they've already started by rejecting the authority of God's word. You see where it can take you? If you reject the authority of God's word, then you don't have to listen to what Peter said, 1 Peter 1.18. He says, you were redeemed not with perishable things, but with the blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or spot. Somebody will quote that to one of these professors, and they go, well, I know it says that, but it's not true. This is what they thought. That's the reflection of a barbaric culture 2,000 years ago, but it is not true. I read a, a quote this week from Christian Century Magazine that presumes to be a Christian magazine. It is not, but it presumes to be. And the article was by Daniel Bell, and the name of the article was, God Does Not Demand Blood to Redeem Us. And here's just one little paragraph. This is what he says. This is a professor of theology, okay? He said, God neither inflicts violence nor desires suffering in order to set the divine human relationship right. He doesn't require it. In spite of its pervasiveness in Christian imagery, you know, of Jesus on the cross, in spite of all that, the cost of communion with God, of reconciliation and redemption is not blood and suffering. Now, that's not an idiot that just doesn't know the Bible. That's somebody who has spent their lifetime studying the Bible but just doesn't believe it. 
And so when they talk about something like this, they completely rejected the biblical way of salvation that says it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, how can you do that? Well, you just have to, all you start with, well, the Bible's just not true. It's a great book, and it tells us how to be nice people and all that kind of stuff, but it is not the authority of God. And once you do that, you can create your own morality, you can reject all authority, and you can reject God's way of salvation. Mm. Fifth. Fifth. They reject God's values. Verse 11 says, these false teachers have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. <laughs> this anyone, is a good wanna, one. anyone wanna take a shot at what that one means? <laughs> Two questions about this verse um, that we have to ask. Number one, what is meant by gain? And number two, what is Balaam's error? What does he mean by that? Balaam in the Old Testament was a, an Old Testament prophet. He is portrayed overwhelmingly very negative. In fact, the New Testament has nothing good to say about him. The Old Testament has mostly nothing good to say about him. There's one story that sort of could be read positively, but when you read it in light of everything else, it's negative. But here's what had happened. Israel had just come out of the wilderness and was going into the promised land, into Canaan. They had to get there by means of going through land. There were several kings that would not allow them through, and so they end up in this fight with the Amorites. God tells them, I have put the Amorites in your hand. They beat them. Sihon and Og are the two. They sound more like orcs from Lord of the Rings if than have, kings. If you have but, twins, name them Sihon and Og. And Og, yeah, that would yeah. be a disaster, actually. Don't do that. Um, they immediately become a threat to the Moabites. And the Moabite king, a man by the name of Balak, summons Balaam to come and, as a prophet, curse Israel. Now, Balaam is not an Israelite. He's a prophet, but he's not an Israelite. And so he, he has him summoned to come and curse Israel. And I don't have time to unpack the whole story, but here's what you need to know. Balaam is paid by Balak to pronounce these curses upon Israel. So ah. he, he is a prophet by pay. That is an important detail. Because I ain't it, cheap, but I can be but bought. But I can be bought. It answers yeah. the first question, what did Jude mean by they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain? He's saying they can be bought. They don't teach according to conviction, but convenience. They will teach whatever benefits them. Even if it's the truth that they're teaching, they're not teaching it because it's the truth. They're teaching because it benefits them in some way. It, it supports them in some way. They have something to, to gain from it. Balaam actually eventually blesses Israel four different times, but the only reason he blesses Israel is because God reveals to him, I'm going to execute you if you curse Israel. <laughs> So he because, begins. Well, that's not a good path no. to take. <laughs> so he begins being motivated by the benefit of money. He ends being motivated by the benefit of not dying. Right? So he saved his rear, but now he can take money. Now for, he can take money for something else. So yeah. everything in his story is done through some kind of gain. And the same could be said about these false teachers. They are doing what they are doing because it benefits them. It supports them. That's does, it. Does that sound familiar? It does. It sounds very familiar. Call them by name. You do I it. dare you. No, you do it. No, you do it. No, you, you do it. You do it. There it is. <laughs> Who said it? We were just being the bigger person. Yeah. You know? we didn't... Beyond that, it was Balaam. This is interesting. His story gets even more interesting. It was Balaam who showed Balak how to entice Israel eventually into idolatry and sexual immorality. So Jesus uh, talks to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. In chapter 2, verse 14, he's speaking to the church in Pergamum. And he says, but I have a few things against you. 
you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, uh-huh. who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. You see, Balaam went to curse Israel, and he ended up having to bless Israel because he knew God would destroy him otherwise. So what he couldn't accomplish through prophecy, he accomplished through seduction. Hmm. He couldn't curse Israel, but what he could do is lead them into a place that, that brought them into idolatry and sexual sin, which then would in turn bring curses upon them through their own actions. And he got paid for doing that. And he got paid for doing it. Yeah. So again, put it all together. The slippery slope starts with reject, rejecting biblical truth. That's where it always begins. Inevitably, you will reject biblical morality as well, and you will eventually define your own. And when someone calls you on it, you will reject them as well because you will have rejected spiritual authority. And once you're at this point, all bets are off. You eventually reject the basic foundational teachings of Christianity, even the, the very message of salvation. You'll just throw out and say, yeah, you just, you just do whatever is, is good for you. You live your best life. You, you do whatever. And what are you left with after that? <laughs> live your best a little, life. Little you just kind of snuck that yeah, in, did. didn't you? What are you left with? <laughs> you're left with whatever brings you gain. It just becomes about whatever is best for me, right? Abandon integrity. Teach whatever benefits you the most, and even if it means leading other people into sin and idolatry, doesn't matter. And you become just like Balaam. Hmm. You, you, you succumb to Balaam's error. And if that isn't enough, last, we'll close here. They eventually, number six, destroy unity among God's people. The final Old Testament illustration comes from probably most of your favorite morning devotional book of the Bible, the book of Numbers. Um, I read a text of Numbers every morning for devotional. Every number. Uh, Numbers chapter 16 includes a story that we call Korah's Rebellion. Korah Mm. is an individual in the Scripture who is seen as a sort of prototype for what it means to be rebellious. And in the story, this is how it goes. Korah and two other individuals, Reubenites, Come to Moses and Aaron. They have gathered with them 250 leaders in Israel, and they begin to uh, put forth formal complaints about what Moses and Aaron are doing. And there are two major complaints that they issue to Moses and Aaron. The first thing they argue against is that Aaron and his sons, Aaron being the first high priest, and his sons are able, they're the only ones able to light incense in the temple of the Lord, in the tabernacle. And even though there are other Levites, there are other priests, those other Levites are not permitted to do so. It is only Aaron and his sons. And, the and people they take, don't like that. They take issue with that. So there's a, there's, there's a problem on the church staff, right? <laughs> yeah. Someone's getting privilege and the others aren't. Aaron and uh, the Levites. All the priests should be able to do this, they say. But number two, they go even further. They say, we don't even like the separation between the Levites and the rest of the congregation of Israel. All of them are holy, which is, by the way, not true at all. (laughs) If you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of very unholy Israelites. Even the priests had to offer sacrifice for their sin before (laughs) they they could offer for the people. They were not good people at all. But this is what he said. This is number 16.3. He says, you have gone too far. (laughs) <laughs> For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Oh, gosh. So here's Moses' solution. It's a great, you know, he's a problem solver, problem solving <laughs> Moses. He says, this is what we do. Come off, back the next day. Off with their heads. Yeah. No, no, he's, he's very gracious. He says, come back the next day, and everyone bring your own censer. A censer, I have a picture for you, is what you would use to light a fire in and then throw incense in it, and it would burn incense. And, you know, you swing it around the temple, and it's one of those deals. <laughs> So bring your censer, light your fire, burn the incense, and whoever the Lord chooses, 
He chooses. We'll let him decide. Yeah, let God decide. Yeah, y'all have a problem with me and my leadership, so we'll just let God decide once and for all who he chooses. So the next day they do this. They, they show up. They have their, their censers. They light their fires. They burn their incense. Come on, baby. And, yeah, exactly. The doors are playing in the background. And they're swinging their incense around, and it says that the earth opens up and swallows Korah and both of the Reubenites and all of their households and all of their dwelling places. Total destruction. Nuclear option. Total destruction. Now, the 250 men that they enticed to come alongside, they luckily were spared by not being swallowed up by the earth. They were swallowed up by fire from heaven. (laughs) So it was a little better for them, I guess. I don't know. Choose your death. Now, why does Jude appeal to this? What do the false teachers and this story have in common? I think there are two reasons why he connects this story to this slippery slope. Number one, because they paint a picture of what it looks like truly to disrupt the unity amongst God's people. They question what God had said about Moses and Aaron, and they lead others in the community into their rebellion, and all of them pay a price for that rebellion. Side note, this is why we believe in church discipline at City on a Hill. It's why the Bible teaches church discipline. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Put it on a coffee cup, right? <laughs> you are warped. I'm telling you. We're going to have a whole line of coffee cups after the sermon series. <laughs> he says, get him out of there. Get them out of there. Paul says in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, he says. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And check this out. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Hmm. So what he says is when someone in your midst is living a rebellious life, when they, are, when they are enticing others into their rebellion, get them out. Why? Because if we don't, they're likely to lead those others astray, and just like Korah, they will all face the consequences. Wow. The fallout of that rebellion is not just for Korah and those two other men. It affected everyone they led astray as well. And to understand that, he just makes a little statement in Jude. One little line. You've got to go back and understand what the Old Testament the whole imagery is. Absolutely. all the Jews understood it. We Gentiles, we've we got to study it. Unless we know it. Listen, let me just say this. Church discipline is not fun, right? It's not, it's not something that we ever look forward to. And it's not something we honestly have had to practice more than a handful of times in the 15 years I've been here. Usually people discipline themselves and just remove they themselves. They just remove themselves. But, but you do need to understand this. It is necessary. It's awful when someone breaks into rebellion. It's even worse when there are casualties caught in the line of fire. So Jude brings up Korah, I think, to show that these people eventually will not be able to keep this quiet. They will eventually lead others into rebellion. But number two, I think he brings up Korah's rebellion as a message to those false teachers because they know what came of Korah. And I think what (laughs) Jude is saying is, your time is coming too. You begin this slippery slope rejecting the truth of God's word, and it will end in your demise. It happens over and over and over over. again, and you are not, you're not immune. Hmm. You, you, You start with rejecting biblical truth, and then you reject biblical morality. You eventually define your own morality. You answer to no one because you reject authority as well. You eventually reject salvation. You just live your life, hope it works out, be a good person, 
And that will lead you to a place of no integrity, of self-centered motivation. If it doesn't benefit you, don't do it. If it does benefit you, do whatever for it. And before long, you will entice others to follow. And you will become a rebellious leader. And listen to me, because I will say this with the most love and grace that I can possibly say it. I will kick your butt out of here without batting an eye. I will. And it's not because I don't like you. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I love all the rest of you too much to see you get caught up in something and ultimately penalized for it. And what Judah's saying here is it doesn't have to be that way. Hmm. It doesn't have to be it. Don't go down the slippery slope. Don't do it. Contend for the truth. Don't reject it. Hmm. Stand firm in the truth. Don't turn your eyes from it because when you do, it takes you to a place that Hmm. will not pan out. You ever seen that movie? What was that movie? Uh, uh, grit, True Grit. Well, that didn't pan that out. That didn't pan out. It's not yeah. going to pan out. It's not going to pan out. You're going to end up with a bunch of people dead around you going, oh my gosh, what happened? Mm. You went down the slippery slope. Don't do it. Jude says, don't do it. Contend for it. The way of truth is narrow and few are they that find it. And the, the way, way of is destruction is broad and many. And many will go down. It doesn't have to be that way. Will you I'm not talking about all of you. I'm talking about individually you. Ask yourself this question. Will you contend for the truth? Will you do it regardless of the cost? Because let me tell you, the cost is nowhere near the cost of rejecting it and going down this path. And we are seeing churches all over America right now split right down the middle over non-biblical garbage. And Christians are buying into it, and they are willing to talk to others, and they are willing to draw others into that rebellion, and churches are being destroyed, split, right down the middle, all over America right now. This is about as current a message for America and for Christians in America and for churches. What are you going to be? What are we going to be? Are we going to be a people that holds to the Word of God, and are we going to be a people that's willing to let that go just so we can be popular with our culture? It's the choice. We choose truth. Hope you do as well. Hmm. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for another just challenging message right out of Jude and the the incredible imagery that Jude works in from the Old Testament to remind us of the error of so many before us and to remind us that we are are no different Hmm. if we go down that path. I pray, God, that your spirit would speak clearly into the hearts of your people here, that you would reveal places where perhaps we have rejected truth, places where we perhaps have chosen comfort over Mm -hmm. conviction, and that you would bring that to light that it may be repented of. Mm -hmm. Lord, we love you. We want to serve you, and we want to do so humbly and in the center of your truth. And so guide us, God. We depend upon you. Without you, we have nothing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hey, gave all the hard stuff to you this morning. That was good. Happy Reformation Day, by the way, y'all. Amen. We'll see you next time.